Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. I'm Kevin. And this is John. And this is Six Degrees of Schwarzenegger, the podcast where we take a long, hard look at some of our favorite action movies from the era of Arnold. Now, Schwarzenegger is the icon of the genre, and we're taking a deep dive into some of these 80s and 90s cult action movies and breaking them all the way down. We're going to get into the nitty gritty and examine the good, the bad, the ugly, and the laughable in these movies. But we're always coming from a place of love. You don't watch these movies as much as we have unless you have a genuine affection for them. Affection might be simplifying. It's sort of a weird obsession, really, at yeah. this point. Uh, <laughs> I think so. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, for those of you joining us for the first time, uh, welcome for the first time um, and happy holidays, you guys. That's right. We're kicking off the holiday season with a holiday classic. Absolutely. Uh, a, a Christmas classic for sure. A Christmas mirror, an action movie miracle, if you will. You can fight us on this if you disagree. <laughs> Let us hear about it. This is 1988's Die Hard. Oh, my God. Amazing movie. It's on clearly... It's a Mount Rushmore of action movies movie. It is. You were asking for my top five action movies uh, just last night, and my indecision cripples me from picking favorites of anything, <laughs> but this movie is definitely in the top five favorites yeah. of all I time. think on most people's lists, this may be at the top. If not, it's, it's at least recognized, right? It's actually got me nervous about trying to give it the six degrees of Schwarzenegger treatment because right. it's so fucking good. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's one of those, as a student of screenwriting, it's one of those where you look at the story and there's zero wasted motion. It's like every moment counts. It's like a precision timepiece. Yeah. We talk a lot about some some laughable movies, and this one's not laughable, but we're going to go through and we're going <laughs> to examine some some of the oddities, perhaps. Absolutely. Why don't we take a look at this, uh, this all-star cast, yeah, <laughs> first dude, of all. Let's do it. All right, first we have Maestro Willis making his <laughs> action movie debut with a paycheck from Rupert Murdoch of an unprecedented $5 million. It's insane that you could come from TV Moonlighting, I guess, which was a popular show, but not, yeah. uh, you know, I don't know what the dynamic was. It was more of a comedy, right? Oh, yeah. With Sybil Shepard. Yeah. Oh, she's so beautiful. Um, yeah, it was it was a great show. I vaguely remember it. Um, I remember it being on and my mom being a fan, but... I I could never you know remember the mm -hmm. details of an episode or anything like that. But yeah, to to command a paycheck like that for your first foray into action, it's pretty good. I think they knew they had the right man for the job. Yeah, and then starring opposite him, making his film debut, Sir Alan Rickman. I don't, I don't know, know if he's, he's been, or not. I don't know if he got knighted before he pet mm. RIP Alan Rickman. You uh, are gone too soon, my a friend. Treasure. Um, yeah, a, a treasure for your land, a treasure for a treasure for motion pictures who who made his debut in movies at the age of 41. Yeah, never too late. No, <laughs> always live your dreams. <laughs> but um, man, <laughs> those two amazing, perfect casting 
Yeah. I, my 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 thing about this movie is every part from the largest to the smallest was just perfectly cast. I couldn't conceive of a of another person playing any of these roles. So there was Reginald Vell Johnson playing Carl Winslow, Carl, not Carl Winslow <laughs> in this, but playing Sergeant Al Powell, uh, the only what the only competent policeman in Los Angeles, the only one, yeah, <laughs> the desk jockey. But then you had, I mean, we'll get to them, I guess, as we roll through. But there was Ellis. There was uh, Deputy Chief Dwayne Robinson. You had some some terrific 80s standbys. They were yeah. guys that were ubiquitous at the time. Dick Thornburg. That's yeah. right. <laughs> and then and then the Bolshoi Ballet's own Alexander Goodenov. Yeah. Doing yeoman's work. Yeah, you, you, <laughs> might, you might remember him as the like the weird conductor boyfriend from Money Pit with yes. Tom Hanks and Shelley Long. He's always got to be that guy, right? Yeah, like a little Euro, slimy. Euro trash. But yeah, directed by John McTiernan. Coming off, f- coming fresh off Predator, right? Fresh from Predator. Those are, as back-to-back efforts go from an action movie director, hard to beat Predator and uh, Die Hard back-to-back. It's a Schwarzenegger-like one-two punch, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I thought... James Cameron doing Terminator and Aliens back to back is like the only thing I can think of that's close. That's just as iconic. Yeah, yeah just absolutely. like two, two icons of the genre. Yeah, yeah, like two of the pinnacle of what action movies can be. Absolutely. Um, what else? We got cinematography by Jan de Bond, who action movie nerds know went on to direct Speed and Twister. Mm-hmm. Written by. Uh, Steven D'Souza, who was just destroying worlds in the 1980s. Just <laughs> he, he had to be the action movie guy. And also, I guess, good buddies probably with Joel Silver and yeah. the, the producers. And really, really uh, versatile, depending on who his leading talent was, was able to, to, help, <laughs> to help make them the best version of themselves they were going to be on screen. Yeah, I mean, this movie, I feel like, you know, in the in the 80s, I don't think action movies were thought of as movies that deserved much attention as far no. as consideration for awards or anything like that. But to me, this is a best screenplay caliber screenplay. It's really good. And it's really, I mean, really good. best picture caliber movie, honestly. And what I was saying about the, the ability of D'Souza to set the dynamic and to really capitalize on the strengths of his talent. So you have, you know, Bruce Willis in this movie mm-hmm. and, and Alan Rigman and the scenes are, Tailor made like a John Phillips of London suit. Um, then, then if Finally you tune like a like a Rolex, that's right. And if you look at other things like Forty Eight Hours, that that buddy cop dynamic yeah, between hours. Nolte yeah. and, and Eddie Murphy, and then like Commando Command. and Running Man. So it's like he knows who he's working with. He knows how to 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 mm-hmm. script the narrative around their strengths or weaknesses. In the screenplay, we we got to also give a shout out to this other guy, Jeb Stewart who was co-writer on it. My understanding is that he sort of wrote the bulk of the, the nuts and bolts of the story. And then D'Souza was coming back through and like sort of doing dialogue rewrites almost as they were filming. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, but yeah, it's somehow some, somehow some way this story die hard is based on a book by, <laughs> by a writer named Roderick Thorpe. It is, the book was called Nothing Lasts Forever, and it was a sequel to a book that Roderick Thorpe had written in the 60s called The Detective. Oh, I think I read somewhere also that Eastwood had wanted to buy the rights to this and star in For it himself. himself. Yeah, I think originally 
the character, the McLean character who wasn't named McLean in the book was a much older guy. Right. And it was like his daughter who was the employee of the company who was in trouble, and, yeah, which makes be, sense. Cause yeah. I think that was written, you know, 15 years after the first book when he would have been more of like probably a mid thirties guy. But the first one was made into a film in 1968 starring Frank Sinatra. And due to the terms of the contract, they were con- contractually obligated to offer Sinatra the right to play the part. <laughs> Like it said, if there was ever a sequel to this movie, you have the right of first refusal to play the character. So he had the right to play John McClane, but he turned it down. Well, (laughs) damn, I kind of would have loved to have seen some. He was 73 at the time. Cut of Sinatra (laughs) climbing through air vents. Motherfucker. (laughs) But um, (laughs) yeah, I think thank God he said no. And then I think they considered a bunch of other older actors like like your Eastwoods. I think Burt Reynolds was considered De Niro. Wow. Um, and then I think when they realized they could go younger, they they sort of went and rewrote it, made it the wife instead of the daughter who was in trouble. And, and all. Willis was in his early 30s. Yeah, I think for he this, was like, probably with 30, 30 to 35, yeah, somewhere like he was, that. He was less than 35. It's like 31 or 33. I can't remember. Okay. And the music, uh, some great music in this. A lot of classical music themes show up here and there, especially Beethoven's Ninth. Um, Michael Kamen is the guy that did this, which I only recognize, yep. I, I mean, from a few things, but Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves and Lethal Weapon were two of his responsibilities. Nice. So, yeah. Good, good soundtracks there. And all of this wrapped up in a package that cost $28 million to make, made $83 million in the U.S. Nice. And over $141 million worldwide. And spawned a, a true uh, action franchise. A franchise. Yeah, absolutely. That's probably that's good work. nuts and bolts for us. That's good work, yeah. Should we talk about the movie? Um, I'm good. All you right. good? <laughs> Well, let's first we'll talk about what are we sipping on? Here. Oh, well, you do the honors. You you tell uh-huh. people. Well, we're we're back in Atlanta. So we're sipping on an Atlanta uh, staple. This is American Spirit Whiskey's Duality. Mm. Tasty, tasty. Hostage, sip. terrorist, terrorist hostage. You know, a classy movie calls for a classy beverage. That's right. Well, cheers, friend. Cheers. Che- and cheers to all of you. We encourage you to drink. It'll make this uh, it'll make this go smoother for all of us. Mm hmm. This movie does go down smooth like a fine, uh, like a fine whiskey. It ages well, too, oh, like a fine wine. Love it. Like an aged brie. <laughs> like a nice aged brie. <laughs> oh, Ellis. Okay, we got to get, we got to get into this. I Without can't wait further ado, let's, yeah, let's unwrap this, this present. <laughs> this gift to the world. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. You take, you take the All lead. right, so we have an amazing opening shot. You love this shot of this plane landing. Yeah, this giant plane on the ultra super widescreen format that the movie was shot in like it fills the entire frame like it's edge lovely to edge. yeah it's lovely and uh and we see our our hero white knuckling his way through the landing mm. he's not enjoying it yeah and his uh his uh his seatmate asked him <laughs> you don't like flying do you no nah, he, he had him pegged i think he could tell but even that guy, like bit part, a couple of lines, totally believable, totally that, nice. This movie was full of like eighties, I feel like stereotype yeah, characters, totally. but they work. Oh, they totally work. They're they're close enough to reality, I think. So this guy is very observant, notices McLean is not enjoying this, and uh, mm. suggests that if he gets tense on flights, then when he gets to wherever he's going, he ought to get barefoot and make fists with his toes in the carpet. You know, we can blame this guy for a lot of John McClane's woes in the That's movie. That's right. We can. We'll um, get back to him later. But he, yeah, he swears it's better than what? Better than a hot shower and a hot cup of coffee. Yeah. 
do you have any fears of flying at all? No, I wanted to be a pilot from when I was little. So from my first flight I ever took, which I think was in like a, a single engine airplane, I was like just oh, stoked awesome. to be flying. Yeah, I loved yeah, it. I start reading a book before the plane takes off and sometimes haven't realized that the plane has taken off. Oh, yeah. It's just doesn't phase you. Yeah, it doesn't phase me at all. Anyway, we're not John McClane. We our shoes would have been on, I guess, <laughs> is what I'm saying. But yeah, the guy, he, what he tells McClane, like, trust him. He's been doing it for years. And then. He notices McLean has a gun under his jacket. Yeah, McLean gets up like an asshole when the plane first stops to jump up and get his effects <laughs> out of the, the first guy out. Hey, just sit tight, buddy. Um, yeah, he gets his personal effects. The guy notices a gun. McLean explains he's a cop. Um, he also grabs a giant teddy, teddy bear. He pulls a massive teddy bear from the overhead. He was McLean was hogging the overhead bin space with that bear. Yeah, and uh, presumably uh, some type of baggage, but um. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you who doesn't mind. That's the thirsty flight attendant that oh, looks him up and down. As how he's gorgeous was that woman? She's attractive. She, yeah, she had it going on. Like she did not look too eighties dated to me. No, 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 no. Um, another weird bit of trivia that I'm not even sure if I want to believe it or not, but supposedly the bear that McLean pulls down from the bin is the same exact bear that, McTiernan used in his next movie, The Hunt for Red October, when um, Jack That's Ryan right. is traveling That's with right. a giant bear for his kid, like a souvenir. I don't know. As crazy as McTiernan sounds like he was as he progressed through life, it would not surprise me. Maybe he took that bear home with him yeah, and just was like, I'm going to use this in another movie. movie. I wonder if there was a place that he could use that bear in Predator. <laughs> get to the trauma i don't know i don't know i don't um, know this this movie has not a whole it speaks to the timelessness of d'souza's writing and others that this movie there's not a lot about it that feels dated even if you watch it now except for maybe the absence of cell phones but anyway i digress this movie has a great blast from the past um, and I love it in the 80s and 90s movies when people light up in the airport. Oh, yeah. I mean, just imagine a lot has changed, right? Like imagine you're carrying a gun on an airplane. Right, exactly. <laughs> Unless you're a sky marshal. Yeah. Even police, I'm sure, in 2019 are not allowed to carry guns on right. airplanes. I, I wouldn't think so. Gotta you got to check that, sir. <laughs> so we cut to a Christmas party in full swing at Nakatomi Plaza. Uh, a titan of international business, Joseph Yoshinobu Takagi, is making the rounds, shaking hands, and makes a nice speech. Apparently, it was a great year for the corporation. Yeah. They've uh, gotten hundreds of millions in untraceable bear bonds tucked <laughs> away. They, they had a hell of a year. They had a great year. He encourages everyone to have a good time. Next up, we get uh, Holly Gennaro walking around, clearly still working and being stalked by the best ever of all time. <laughs> no, the total sleaze, Harry Ellis, who, Harry. Who's, tr who's trying to beg her to spend the night with him. I, I never knew until I was really studying the movie closely that Ellis was not this character's first name, but yeah, they do. I think she calls him Harry. She calls him. Harry I don't right know now. that his first name's ever said again. And no. he's just Ellis for the rest of the movie for, from Takagi, from McLean, from yep. Holly, everybody. Um, but yeah, so Harry Ellis, he, who, tries, he tries to woo her home with some mulled yeah. wine, aged debris. Yes. A roaring it sounds, fire. It sounds nice. If she didn't have kids at home right. to get like, she's it's Christmas Eve. She's got, plans she's yeah. busy this movie's got a few instances of people like fishing for dates on christmas eve like late into the evening on christmas the eve. holidays are a lonely time for a lot of people Kevin. i guess if you're away from family yeah you're looking for a little someone to keep you warm <laughs> it's 
cold. Maybe it's cold outside. (laughs) Exactly. Also, an important moment that happens here is Holly sets a time for what she says. She tells the assistant. This is vital information. It's 540. And we can see it's like sunset outside. So it's, yeah. So it's very, very early in the evening. Ellis sends out feelers for for one more last attempt. And Holly's like, no, thanks. I got to call my two kids, you slime and calls the McLean residence where little Lucy McLean answers the phone. Yeah. Cute little kid. Yeah. Um, as she's uh, as Holly's on the phone, we get this awesome slow camera pan over the shoulder that shows pictures of her and her family, of her and the kids. And then we see a family portrait of her with Bruce Willis is uh, with Bruce Willis's John McClane and their children. Correct. Um, Lucy asks if daddy's coming home and Holly says she'll have to see what Santa and mommy can do. Um, and then asks the maid to set up the guest bedroom for for daddy. Yeah, Paulina. I feel bad for Paulina. She's being made to work kind of late on Christmas Eve. Well, I kind of get presuming Paulina she, seems like a family woman. Uh, well, yeah, that's true. I guess she doesn't live with the McLeans, but she, she could be, though, if you think. No, because she's saying, like, make the room ready before you leave or something. So I guess she's going to be leaving once once Holly gets home. Yeah, because presumably she wasn't supposed to get home all that late. You know, this kind of wrecked her Christmas Eve a little bit. Paulina. Yeah. Holly's such a bitch. Inconsiderate. <laughs> uh huh. Oh, so yeah, she gets off the phone with Pauline and she flips that family portrait face down. She does. She doesn't want to see it. I think she's. I think it's establishing that there's some um, animosity between her and John. Is she? She's kind of mad at John, or yeah. mad at the situation that yeah, we're not really Christmas sure. has come to this. Yeah, I think I think that she's upset. I think it's just supposed to establish that that there's that there's tension between her and we we don't necessarily know what it's about. It's also um, instrumentally helpful to the plot that absolutely. she turned that picture down. She's clearly not looking forward to the visit, though, at no. least in that moment. She I, doesn't I can't tell if she she seems halfway to be looking forward to it. But I think she's also, yeah, I don't know, frustrated. Yeah, she absolutely. doesn't like that her her family might not be together for Christmas exactly. or whatever. She blames John for this. It's it's a it's, you know, this little impetuous moment where she's mm-hmm. frustrated and flips the thing down. It's like pivotal, that thing of John looking at you smiling from the behind the glass. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, I don't want to look at you right now. People yeah. said that like exes and stuff. It's like, I just can't look at you right now. I of get course. That. I totally get that. <laughs> I, get that. I get that a lot. <laughs> uh, so back in the airport, we see uh, a driver holding a sign for Jay McLean. It's Argyle. It is Argyle, our, our chauffeur. That's right. He's a very likable character. Um, in they, this. they both kind of stand there. This is this is a good bit of just like awkwardness of them just standing in silence. Neither of them kind of sure mm-hmm. what what the protocol is because we find out it's Argyle's first well, time driving. I think McLean's like, all right, so what do we do now? Yeah, it's hoping you could tell me. Yeah, Argyle's yeah. first time driving a limo, and McLean yeah. says, "Well, that's okay. It's my first time riding in one." And it's like a good exchange. They're both like blue collar yeah. guys. They they very they seem instantly in the next scene very uh comfortable with one another in the car where mclean's riding up front argyle is like immensely likable yeah like just the guy he's a he's a man's man and mclean is a man of the people mclean is like this helps to push through that he's like an every man yeah absolutely absolutely Uh, mctiernan said that like a key element to him signing on to make this movie was that that McLean had that every man factor. Like he said in early drafts when he was sort of hesitant to do the movie, McLean was kind of like a stone cold killer. Oh, interesting. Like a dirty Harry type. Like mm. then they made him into a more relatable oh, yeah. kind of an every man. You would not be invested in that character at all. And he's, I mean, McLean for as well as he 
performs on this night, he's in over his head. Oh, big time. Like he's big not, he, he's you know, out, outgunned. He's actually, he's in over his head. If you think about it, like even having to go to this kind of corporate office party, yeah, like he's, riding in a limo is out of his comfort zone. Everything about it is fish out of water. It's yeah. all fish out of water. It's also a very like Western, like Western movie, cowboy movie mm-hmm. trope that like, the guy's in from, uh, you know, the drifter comes in from out of town Blown who plays by his own rules. Like, I love yeah, it. I love it. So then we get a little exposition by limo ride. Uh, yes. We, Argyle, great plot device. Oh, absolutely. A very likable plot device. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hear that, um, John's wife, Holly has been out in California the past six months. Okay. And, I was wondering how long the separation had yeah. been going on for. And then Argyle points out that McLean still lives in New York. Yeah. It starts to make McLean a little un- uncomfortable. Um, Argyle informs him. He apologizes for this gaffe saying that oh, I used to be a cab driver, which at this point I'm like, I hate like summoning an Uber or a Lyft. <laughs> and it says so-and-so is great at conversation. I'm like, fuck my life. You want, you want silence. I, I want him to not him or her to not speak to me. I feel like that's what McLean was looking for, but then he also did choose to sit up front. Yeah. Well, I don't know, but he's sort of like saying, do you always ask this many questions to yeah, Argyle? Yeah, Cause yeah. he was like grilling him for all of the exposition that we need. Yeah, Argyle asks if they're divorced. McLean says to just drive the car, but he's amused by Argyle. I like that. He's not put out by it. Yeah. He just kind of smiles. Argyle's the whole just, thing. He's, he's not, yeah, he's not being like nosy. He's just being talkative. Um, McLean then reveals that Holly got a, an amazing job offer uh, that turned into a great career with uh, with the corporation. And that meant that she needed to be in L.A. At that point, Argyle sort of hits the nail on the head and is like, oh, so you thought that she'd fail <laughs> totally. out here and come crawling back. So why bother packing? Yeah. And he's sort of like, you know, you're very fast, Argyle. <laughs> and I think at that point, Argyle can pick up that, Ar- that McLean's tired of talking from a uh, photography perspective i love that throughout this car ride and really throughout the this beginning section of the movie the car ride there and then the little jumps that we're going to see in a moment that we get these uh we get these shots of of nakatomi like looming in the distance yeah like this it's a beacon or something yeah this ominous it's like foreshadowing um but then they arrive at nakatomi and there's this awesome bit when they get there where, where Argyle asks McLean if he's got a plan for if things go south, <laughs> which I think is super stand up. We were talking about is like yeah. Argyle's the kind of guy that ends up running the cab company. Oh, yeah. He's awesome. Yeah. They really. They, yeah. They and they pull into the uh, the the turnaround or whatever the the whatever the plaza in front of the building. And there are these big ornate trees planted there, which mm-hmm. the production design team said, yeah, those were meant to be large bonsai trees. <laughs> or as I like to call them trees. <laughs> I think I, it's just odd. But yeah. um, as you say, Argyle gives great customer service. Argyle plot device, stand up guy. Yep. So inside a reception, uh, McLean finds that Holly via the, the little touchscreen device, cute toy, which had to be like cutting edge. Oh yeah. For 88, yeah. like state of the art. I wonder, I can't remember the first time I saw this movie. It was not in 1988, probably a year or two after when I was a little bit older. But, I, you know, I wonder what people's reactions were to seeing a oh, touch screen. Oh, that my is God. like the future. Yeah, right. Exactly. The future I grew is up, here. I think, watching a recording like a bootleg of this recorded off of HBO. So uh, I, I grew up on the unedited version. Yeah. I never seen an edited version of this movie. I don't think I did do except yeah. for. And then, you know, you see. TBS, yippee Mr. Falcon. Uh, um, <laughs> yes. So he finds that Holly's using her 
maiden name. Gennaro. Yikes. There's a weird thing in the movie that I noticed when, when watching Ultra Close for the purposes of this podcast. Of course. That when he goes to tap her name on the screen, it's initially spelled G-E-N-N-A-R-O. Mm-hmm. And then when he taps it in the color, it like highlights the spelling of the name flips to G-E-N-N-E-R-O, which mm. is just like somebody, whoever built those graphics has probably been kicking themselves for like the past <laughs> 30 years over that Oops. mistake. Oops. But I think it's the E-R-O spelling is the correct spelling for the well, character. It would be for Gennaro because the A would be Gennaro. And- which she does get called Gennaro. Okay, she? Uh, like from time to time. Hmm. I don't know, but I think that might be the European accents or something like this. Maybe. But at any rate, it's just, I never noticed that little goof before. Yeah. And I've seen this movie 50 times. At I least. never noticed it until you pointed it out. Yeah. It's, it's a blink of an eye. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, the guy at the desk directs McLean to the 30th floor the, where the only people in the building are having a Christmas rager. <laughs> I felt like he could have told him that yeah. and when he walked in. Yeah. The 30th floor is the only one where you hear for the party. Although yeah. I guess if he's doing good security, he should make him go through the, yeah, this paces rather than just send him up. Absolutely. You're not even sure if he's supposed to be here or not. Yeah, absolutely. So McLean gets off the elevator and the party is in full swing. It never becomes a plot point or is ever referenced in the movie, but students of architecture may recognize like the in the the office layout or the I don't want to call it the office. Maybe it's like the atrium almost. It's yeah, the 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 main like lobby area for the corporation entry foyer. It's meant to be like a it's meant to look like falling water. Frank Lloyd Wright's famous house. It's beautiful. the production designers say like, it's not meant to be like a replica of falling water. It's meant to be that the Nakatomi corporation purchased the falling water house and took it apart where it is in Pennsylvania and moved it across the country and rebuilt it inside their building. Like a, like a trophy, which would seriously tarnish the Nakatomi image. In my yeah. opinion. Like they're just like buying famous American architecture and repurposing it. There was like a lot of, of, Japan phobia oh, yeah, in the mid time. to late eighties, like time. that the the car companies were kicking American car companies' butts, and the the big like Sony's and whatever of the world were coming in and were like buying up huge amounts of real estate. I think it's a it's referenced also in Lethal Weapon. Yeah, I mean that's but that's China today. Well, McLean takes a cocktail, doesn't he? He and does he not quickly en- returns. He it. does not enjoy it. Whatever I don't know the, what it was supposed to be. I, I don't like know. A vodka I was thinking cranberry it's like a, or something like as a red drink. It's Christmas punch. Okay, <laughs> he needs yes, yeah, he needs something like this whiskey that we're serving. Yeah, he needs on. something brown and in a glass. Um, McLean's walking around, just uh, observing the scene. Gets kissed by a man. <laughs> very, very funny. I think that was a first experience hey, for McLean. Merry Christmas! Hey, Merry Christmas! He sort of shoves him away, but not in like a aggressive no, way. He's, he's amused. He's got a smile on his face. Yeah. He wipes his cheek. He's like, "Fucking California!" I love it. I love it. <laughs> this is not. He's a fish out of water, as yeah, we said. He's always, a fish out of always. water. Um, as he continues his search, he ends up walking right up to Joseph Takagi. Yep. Good Looking old for Holly. Good old Joey Takagi. <laughs> who Jojo. I, I, feel, I feel like Jojo is a seriously astute man in that he knows who McLean is on site. He's probably the one guy he doesn't recognize. Yeah. Or something. Well, that, yeah. That's a good point. It's like, who is this stranger showing up? This random. Like, you must up. be, but you know, he had the look of a policeman. Yeah, maybe. Think, yeah. Well. And Takagi's a smart guy. 
you don't run. He wasn't wearing a suit or anything, right? He was kind of dressed down. He's wearing like a button down and a jacket. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't, he didn't look like their corporate type. And he's also carrying that bear. There are lots, <laughs> there are lots of visual clues. There were, now that we think Never about mind. it. Takagi's the bulging, not astute. The gun bulging from his He's pocket. not astute. He has eyes. <laughs> I take it back. He um, offers to take him to Holly's office until Holly returns. She was like handling some business. Yeah. McLean compliments the building saying it's a, it's a hell of a place. And Takagi says it will be if we can ever get the thing finished. Oh uh, yeah. Alluding to some, uh, some unfinished construction going on. Which was the real case for that building. Like that right, was the, right. the building they used was the Fox, like Fox headquarters right. building. And it was brand new building and was still being completed as they were filming. And they cleverly leased it to themselves. During the production. <laughs> yeah. Using like that that's funny awesome. money. Yeah. That's Just, awesome. Yeah. Um, Takagi tells McLean that Holly's still working. Yeah. She put in, she faxed, sending some faxes right in the yeah. vault room, wherever that is. <laughs> and, uh, and takes him to Holly's office to wait where, we find good old Ellis, oh, Ellis. <laughs> finishing off some lines of Coke on Holly's desk. Unbelievable. He couldn't uh, do this in his own office. He's the best. <laughs> he is. He is truly a treasure. Yeah, he is. He's ah, I was tr- trying to make a call. <laughs> the nearest phone. <laughs> uh, yeah. He tries to play it off. McLean knows. Oh, yeah. He's uh, like, hey, you missed some. Yeah. Uh, Takagi <laughs> introduces John as being um, Holly's husband, Holly's policeman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and then we, we kind of get the feeling that, that that Takagi knows what tools are for. He knows what his people yeah. are for. He knows what they're good he at. He doesn't like Ellis, I don't think. No, but he's willing to turn a blind eye to his overt drug habit, I suppose. Yeah. Maybe oh, it's uh, because it's, it's Christmas. So In the spirit of generosity. <laughs> Um, McLean gives you an inkling of just how bright of a guy he is. Cause he asked Takagi, like, I didn't realize I celebrated Christmas in Japan mm-hmm. and, and Takagi plays it off. He makes a, I don't know if it's even a, if it's a good joke about Pearl Harbor, but says like, well, Pearl Harbor didn't work out. So we got you with tape decks. <laughs> it's like, damn. Okay. Takagi can laugh about it. Um, we also find out that, um, Ellis, is useful in that he's the he's in charge of international development, which yes. for a multinational company, got to be huge. It's, he it's he negotiates million dollar deals for breakfast. Yes, probably <laughs> earlier this morning he did just that. <laughs> in between rails of coke, it's, <laughs> it's around that time that Holly enters, and yeah. uh, and there's a moment of sort of shock and surprise. By the time they look at each other, and you feel that spark of like there's love there. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, there's there's a def- even definite though they're chemistry, both, maybe both mad even at each in that other. Moment, yeah. Um, she comes in, um, gives him a hug and kiss on the cheek. And Takagi says something prescient here that Holly's tough as nails. Tough as nails. She was built for this. She's built for this business. And then we get the Rolex bit. Ellis cuts in. He's show like, him the watch. Show him the watch. <laughs> and he's, I think everyone's uncomfortable except for just Ellis. Just a non-starter. Like just out of nowhere. <laughs> show him the watch. Show him the watch. And he's like, I'm sure I'll see it later. And he's like, it's just a token of our appreciation. Like, it's a Rolex. Oh, the face, that smug, slimy face. What an a-hole. He's an asshole, for sure. <laughs> um, McLean changes the subject, asks for a bathroom to get cleaned up. And, uh, yeah. and Holly rescues him and takes him out of the room. Yeah. Oh, and now we get to see May, our first glimpse of our baddies. That's right. We cut to uh, the streets of L.A. We see a box truck rolling around. It's almost the, dark outside at this point. And the score, as if to reflect the darkening mood outside, shifts to a minor version of the Ode to Joy theme, which is awesome. 
really, really effective. You are digging the classical. I, I just, I, I think it's effective. And apparently this guy, the composer, uh, he, he had an issue with that. He was like, you want to use Ode to Joy? He's like, I can make any like Strauss or Mozart yeah, he had too much love for for Beethoven, I think. A lot of composers do. He's yeah. like the pinnacle of, of Western music for a lot of folks. But back at Nakatomi, McLean says that he'd been planning to stay with a, re- a retired police captain uh, who lives in the area. But Holly suggests that, oh, maybe you should just stay with us. Kids yeah. would love it. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's what McLean's like. Oh, the kids would love it. Like, which prompts her to say she, she misses him too. There's a genuine moment of like love and, and like longing between the two of them at that moment, at least from her, because it really is focused on her face before the moment, the, before the moment is ruined by the couple uh. that burst through the, the door <laughs> looking for a place to bang. Yeah. I think, I don't know. I, I don't want to step on a line. I think it's safe to say though, Holly is like a much better person than John is. No, 100%. As is usually the case. She is a patient, smart, capable woman. And John's She's putting a, up with his a hothead misogynist. Yeah, basically. I don't think he wants to be, but no. I think that he is. It's sort of that, like, you can't change your stripes. Yeah. But maybe he'll learn a lesson through all this. I Kevin. think he might. <laughs> so right as things are like looking up, that's when McLean in McLean fashion like yeah. ass starts grilling her about why'd you change your name? Good things can't last. Yeah, you didn't miss me enough to uh to Change your name. Change you didn't your miss name. McClane, except when, when you're signing for checks. Oops. We're signing checks. It's like, yeah, dude. She's first of all, she's getting paid. Oh yeah. Like she, he's talking like she's spending all his money, like signing his name on checks. Yeah, it's kind of it's like, a it's a like, shit attack, and it I mean completely no. un like there's no ground. He has nothing to stand on. And then Holly brings up all of these amazing points. This is a an yeah. Eastern company. It's a Japanese company. You know that sort of thing is you know it's hard it, enough for yeah. a woman to get hired, and then if they yeah exactly. I, think, I didn't quite pick up what she was saying until watching with subtitles. But yeah, she says they figure a married woman's got one foot out the door. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, I figure they know she's got children, though, or maybe not when she was doing the whole interview process. Maybe not. Yeah. Anyway. It, but yes, she makes a million good points that, we, you know, we, we tried to have this conversation before. Yeah, we tried to everything. have this conversation. And so that's that is, that talks about the, the six month time frame. Ah. So they talked about this when she was going to leave. So apparently they've not been talking a lot since she left New no. York. We had yeah. this conversation in July. He said we didn't finish the conversation in July. So yeah. they haven't, they have not, there's a, the wound is still open for, for John. Yeah. I mean, I th- feel like his pride is wounded that she's now the breadwinner and that he should give up his career to follow her. Yeah. And, uh, but he get, should do this. Like yeah. definitely <laughs> yeah. let's don't get me wrong. Yeah. So I think John's just old school, like thinks that, you know, maybe she should be at home with the kids or at least she should be in New York having her career that it wasn't right for her to leave. The only thing I can say that I, where I see his point is like, does she like apparently I guess took the kids and left. Right. But he ought, he ought to have come. He ought to put in two weeks notice and it's going to be much easier for him to find a job with LAPD. LAPD or private security or anything. Yeah. Start his own company. A lot of options. Bank. Or he could a job be a stay at home or be a stay at home dad. Cause Holly's making enough money to support this family. Absolutely. Um, Probably. But yeah, basically she sort of calls him out for being like a old school guy who he thinks, I guess the woman should be at home. Right. Raising the children and right. being sort of a, the caretaker 
of you know the family and right as things are reaching a fever pitch holly's assistant bursts in there's some awkwardness yeah. she says that takagi needs holly to come out because he wants to talk to the troops as it were yes absolutely man bruce willis is like he was born for this part oh yeah like well, the, the little Rupert smirk Murdoch that he gives the assistant when she comes in and then when holly leaves and he's like banging his head against the door it's like you're feeling he he knows that he's wrong oh, yeah, totally he, and he's it's have you been in that situation you. where you see yourself saying and doing stupid things oh my god yeah it's sort of this out of body experience it's like you you know that the things that you're saying are 100 false yeah <laughs> but, but you're still gonna or you are on a losing side of an argument and you're just, you can't help but say the wrong I've thing. Got to, I've got to stick to my side. We should also mention that the assistant has Wolverine here. <laughs> That's true. There's no better time to mention it <laughs> than right now. Yeah. Oh um, my God. So yeah, they, Holly and the assistant leave. McLean is kicking himself or mm-hmm. making an ass of himself, um, being immature. And we cut to the bad guy's arriving at Nakatomi. Yes. They're pulling into the building. The The truck goes down into the parking and garage. Mercedes pulls up to the main door. Um, and then we see this weird, this weird visual of the desk guard seeing the truck. I think he sees him on the, the garage. On the security monitor. He yeah. sees it and doesn't call it in. I would think. Yeah. Or, like, or check are we with expecting his a delivery on Christmas Eve? Isn't the building closed seven? down? He's like the only people in the building. We know yeah. for a fact, no one's accepting. I don't know. Maybe which would have been an easy enough thing to call. I mean, I don't think his first call would be to the police. No, so first, it could have just been to another security guy. And then we see that they take out that other security guy or something. It would have been to another security guy. If anyone else was on duty yeah. or it would have been someone at Nakatomi asking, are we expecting delivery? Are you tonight? expecting a delivery? Is the ice sculpture late? Maybe I don't yeah, know. I don't know, but for sure. Like I never thought about that, but yeah, he sees that and he just seems to shrug it off. So two bad guys who will go ahead and start calling by their names, Theo, sort of a, a, a nerdy black guy who is yeah. awesome. And Carl played by Alexander Gudinov, who star. couldn't look less like an American or, yeah. a, or a fan of basketball <laughs> or a fan of the Lakers. <laughs> yeah. The, they enter like talking about the Lakers and Carl kills the desk guard unceremoniously yeah, shoots him, gun, which doesn't draw the attention of the other security guard who's in the lobby. The yeah. gun was silenced, but it was still kind of loud. And then Theo jumps to the counter jumps and, the desk kicks, and kicks, his desk, kicks his chair over, which is um, definitely a loud clatter. So while Theo starts to work on the computer system, Carl goes to make sure that that guy's never going to hear anything again. Yes. Slides a hockey puck style flash grenade around the <laughs> corner and then unloads on the guy. I was thinking to myself, if I'm in that guy's shoes and this little hockey puck does come rolling out, I'm just like, huh? Yeah. Like, I, would, I don't think my first thing is like, oh, no, that's a weapon. No. I'm just I like, well, who's brought the hockey puck? <laughs> I would be I would be wondering if the guy at the my other friend at the desk was playing some sort of weird Christmas joke. But um, at the loading dock, a small army of terrorists uh-huh. led by the excellent Alan Rickman playing the role of Hans Gruber get out of the truck and start making their way to the entrance. I thought I, it was just, there was a hodgepodge of how these guys were dressed. Oh for yeah. Me. There was like no dress code. No, no, none at all. I mean, so you got Hans who's very put together. Yeah. Like very Armani wall street, guy or whatever. very wall yeah. street looking eighties Armani, but he doesn't, well, you think of him as a guy who doesn't get his hands dirty. Like he's the, he's handling the business side of their, right, exactly. of their plan. And then everyone else sort of looks like they should have a fanny pack on. <laughs> it was like a lot of sweatsuits and like baggy uh, shoulder pads, sweatshirts. I feel like Carl was wearing like, 
black linen or something. It looked like pajamas or like a ninja costume. And all of those styles, interestingly enough, are back in now. Yes. Oh, they're yeah. back in. Absolutely. Every, again, maybe and maybe that's another reason why this movie feels like contemporary. Yeah. <laughs> so um, as the as the army of darkness is rolling into the building, <laughs> Theo uh, at the computer desk shuts down all elevator activity below the 30th floor locks down all the gates yep. and then breaks the computers so that yeah. that can't be undone. I thought you might need to be able to turn those <laughs> elevators back on to get your guys down later, but whatever yeah, he does. Know. He like ninja kicks. Like he just beats up the computers. Oh yeah. Um, the bad guys then install their own man, Eddie at the reception desk. <laughs> They're token like American. <laughs> and then yeah, exactly. The one guy who sort of looks like a, uh, what is it? An Oki, just like some good old boy, you know? Yeah, he's definitely like a, he's a good old boy. You expect he's wearing a cowboy hat whenever he's not on a heist. Exactly. And Hans, in his suit and trench coat, looking amazing, walks over to the front door, peeks around, gets the lay of the land. He takes a long, like, long long peer out the window of the door. Was he... Was he looking to make sure that no one had seen what was happening? I think he's just taking that last. Maybe it's just that moment. This where is he's our like, last chance to walk away. Oh, not even that. But it's just like it's like now into the into the breach. Like he is. OK, he's like taking stock of the thing and, and locking the front door. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> More importantly, locking the front door and throws the key card to Eddie behind the desk. Um, then we get a terrorist named Tony <laughs> running around in his sweats. I call him Tony, the terrorist, Tony, the, Tony, the terrorist. He's great. Navigating the bowels of Nakatomi Plaza, muttering enough German to seem legit. He's really just saying a right and a left yeah. and a left. I kind of picked that up. He's uh, he's uh, looking for the telecom junction box. Kevin, <laughs> we get a, we get a, a terrible, Cut to a wig, not the same guy oh, as a stuntman sliding down. That really bothered you. I never I noticed. I hate bad wigs so yeah. much. I never noticed it, but now I'll never be able to unsee it. Yeah, when yeah. he goes to slide down the stairwell, like he uses the railings and is just sort of hitches his armpits there and slides yeah. down. It's totally not Tony. It's not a great wig. It's a wig. It's motionless hair. So a lot is happening in a short time. So now we have a quick cut back to McLean, who is taking the guy on the plane's advice and making fists with his toes on the rug. And it seems, seems yeah. yeah, it seems like it's working. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, what does he say? He's like, I'll be damned or yeah. son of a bitch or something like that. Um, integral to the plot that McLean has taken his shoes off. Yeah. Fucking guy on the plane. Yeah. Um, outside in the lobby, the quartet can now be heard playing Beethoven's ninth. Um, <laughs> McLean appears to decide that he's going to stay with Holly and the kids and calls Argyle to tell him as much. Yeah. He rings down to Argyle. Who's like in party mode. Yeah. I feel like in there he's like, Hey, what's up? He's like, got his t- stereo cranked. He's drinking from the bar, whatever. I love and it. And then, yeah, he's, I wonder then if too, like Argyle is drinking the booze. Maybe, maybe that night, that night rental from, Takagi was it's all like, paid for, baby. It's all paid for. So know. all the booze is, is on the Or house. they'll just bill them later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but yeah, like as he's doing this, the phone call is happening. Then Tony is like, he's rewiring some of the phone lines. Yeah, he, I he's, think he's working as fast as he can, as fast as his nimble little fingers will allow him, um, cutting all but one of the lines. So it would seem, but then Carl comes in humming to himself. And this is a great exchange. <laughs> Tony's apparently not moving fast enough. Yeah. And, and it's in this scene that we discover that Carl and Tony are brothers. If you're German speaking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Carl walks in, puts down his visor, says, Hey, Bruder. <laughs> <laughs> it is like, it's an arrest development. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> hey brother. <laughs> um, and Tony asks for a moment, 
Um, but Carl's not having, he cranks the chainsaw and starts just going through. So I wonder if maybe there's a contest. He's like, fine, you see how fast you can do it. But if I count to 10 and get down here with a chainsaw, I'm cutting it. I wonder if that would have wrecked their plans if he had cut through before the guy had finished wiring. I assume that's like the fire alarm lines and things of that nature. And the, you know, the things that send an automatic call out of the building that they have to bypass those. Otherwise it'll be triggered. That's that was my thing in the front desk line. They want to keep open and some other critical communications lines, communication infrastructure that must remain in place. Yeah. Um, McLean suddenly loses his call with Argyle as the lines are cut and uh, Argyle figures he'll just sit tight and wait. Yeah. He's like, you got the number. Use it. <laughs> um, we cut to the terrorists in the elevator locking and loading for battle. Yeah. There it's getting serious. The doors open, terrorists fan out. No one really seems to notice what's going on. It is a little bit like everyone's just too involved in the party. Everyone's like, wasted. No one notices the 10 guys over here with machine guns. Everyone's shit canned. <laughs> then suddenly shots are fired. People start screaming. Mm-hmm. A barefoot McLean grabs his pistol. I always, for the last 20 years, have shouted, grab your shoes. At this moment. Do you think that's because you know where the plot's going or you think in that moment you'd have the wherewithal? I I think that if I heard gunfire, I probably would peek out the door, but that I would put on my shoes. Then you see it's like, oh my gosh, it's an emergency. Like you'd grab the shoes. Like if I got to, if I know I'm going to run, I'm not going to go out here and like, I don't know. I think my first instinct is try to get out of there too. I think, I mean, he would have saved himself a lot of trouble had he done that and some scars, but I can sort of see like it never occurred to me that. He should. she should go back and lace them up or whatever. But yeah, the terrorists are like creeping down the hallway. They're checking office door by door. He sees that he is outmanned, outgunned, and that he needs to get the fuck out of there. That's where I think we get that this movie is not like a Rambo. Yeah. Where like Rambo would just bust out and kill everyone and no one could. Right. No one could touch him. Right. You know, and this he's like looking for I got to escape. Like I'm this is not a winning situation for me. Thank God for the the couple banging in the, the next office couple. Yeah. that maybe saved McLean's life. That's what I'm thinking. Like it was only cause that distracted all of the terrorists were like, they wanted to see those boobies that, um, <laughs> those that, boobies saved his life. That He was able to dart across the hallway and hit the stairwell. But I feel like it was a staple of the, of this era of action movies was that everyone you had to have just some gratuitous nudity oh, in it. Absolutely. 100%. Although if it if it did help him make his escape, maybe it's like a little less gratuitous than some yeah, others. It serves a purpose. It served a purpose. That was integral to the plot. By the time the terrorists turn their attention to Holly's office, McLean is gone. It's Banished. a strong, like it's a strong setup to that what f- is going to be an incredible film. That first chapter is, whew, it's so good. Yeah. There's a lot that happens. So I know we ran kind of long on this thing, but you know, you'll forgive us and love every minute of it. Yes. This is uh, this is just that movie. That oh man, how are you feeling? Have feeling after that first episode? Ooh, I'm stoked. God, it's so good. I'm stoked like a Christmas Yule log. <laughs> All right, you guys, we uh, we lift our glasses to you. We uh, we look forward to finding out what happens to John McClane in in chapter two of our our holiday series of yeah. uh, of Die Hard, and um, and we'll see you guys next time. Absolutely, we'll be back.